Good morning and welcome back. Last Sunday, Jessica preached a wonderful sermon about what it means to love our neighbor. She began with Luke 4, when Jesus first preached to his home synagogue. The listeners were thrilled to hear him. Quote, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. But that mood quickly changed when Jesus had the audacity to remind them that the prophets Elijah and Elisha were sent to help heathen foreigners instead of helping the righteous in their own land. Today, as we continue to consider what it means to love our neighbor, we will turn to Jesus' words again. Our first lesson comes to us from Matthew, chapter 5, beginning with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. right we're knee-deep in our series about love we've explored Martin Luther King's levels of love for neighbor we've thought about levels of love for ourselves and Jessica's powerful sermon last week dove deeper into why it's so hard to love our neighbor when it feels like good news for the poor and the oppressed means their gain at our loss Today, we continue to explore what it means to love our neighbor and especially those who are hardest to love. Listen again to Jesus' words as they come to us from Luke 6, beginning in the 32nd verse. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, 
and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Oh God, open our hearts this day to hear your word and to be open to what it means to love even those who are hardest to love. And may all God's people say, amen. If you want a good laugh, Google the phrase, you had one job. That's how John Pavlovitz opens his latest book. If you want a good laugh, Google, you had one job. The results are hysterical. A piece of melted cheese on top of a fast food burger bun. Uh, keep to the right sign with its arrow facing left. <laughs> a toilet lid inexplicably installed below the seat itself. <laughs> These epic fails prompt two reactions. They make you feel a little better about yourself, he says, and they make you wonder about how they managed to, ne to neglect their primary duty. I giggled in agreement. I giggled in agreement until he said, I imagine Jesus knows well the curiosity that comes from watching people given clear direction lose their way. I envision an exasperated Jesus coming back and the first words out of his mouth to his followers, you had one job, love. So what happened? We can imagine the excuses flooding out, quoting scripture, blaming our dissolute culture, talking about people's wicked choices, or parroting back partisan talking points like the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. But Pavlovitz wonders, would any of their responses be sufficient reasons for refusing to love when that was the singular task Jesus left them? Now, I'm not proud that I instantly picture the good shepherd separating the sheep from the goats with the generous, righteous, justice-loving, LGBTQIA-welcoming, racially-sensitive Christians being joyfully escorted into the gates of heaven and others going the other direction. <laughs> but darn it if Pavlovitz doesn't burst my bubble. He says... My heart strangely warms at the possibility of a few billion brimstone-breathing, judgmental Christian neighbors who get what they have coming to them. But my self-righteous revelry doesn't last long. The mirror calls me out, and I begin to wonder what my excuses might be, how I'd spin the enmity I manufacture 
what story I'd come up with for not doing the one task in a disciple's job description. If God is love, he says, and if Jesus is the perfect expression of that love, and if I am supposedly trying to follow that Jesus, how can I be so love impaired? How do I miss the singular point so consistently? Oh, and I should mention, his book is titled, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. <laughs> He's right. Jesus speaks of love more often than anything else, love for God, for family and friends, love for stranger, the outcast, the lonely, the poor, love for our tribe and for the foreigner of different religions, different colors, different castes. Again and again and again, Jesus shows us what God wants more than anything else, to love our neighbors as ourselves. But hardest of all is what we heard from Jesus' mouth today. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, for God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. But how? How do we love our enemies? It's not easy. Just this week, I've heard poignant stories of people who felt betrayed a singer whose audition was sabotaged by the director, a woman whose fiance left her suddenly for someone else, an executive who is black, who was shut down by the white board chair. I can go on and on. And this season in America's life makes it even harder, doesn't it? Harder to love our enemies, harder to love those who hate us because their values and ideals are so radically different from ours. We're polarized, one writer says. Americans can't even agree on who won the 2020 election or whether masks prevent the spread of COVID. It's not out of the question for these political tensions to boil over. Research shows that civil war is likeliest when countries slide away from democracy, when citizens care less about the whole nation than their own individual group, when a dominant group is losing their status, which makes it even more urgent for us to love our enemy. 
more urgent to fulfill the one job we have. So what do we do? What can we do? I don't know what your battle lines are in the culture wars, but I suspect we all have tender and frustrating experiences with people we love. I've heard from many of you who are tiptoeing around family members who are geared up for fighting. And of course, there's the endless stream of anger in our news feeds and social media. I, I can't know where you are with this, but we are all in this right now. But I was encouraged. I was encouraged last week by an interview I heard about John Ronson's podcast, Things Fell Apart. Do any of you know about that? I hadn't heard of it. Ronson launched it because he saw his friends consumed by online arguments and families splitting up and people losing their jobs and reputations. And his hope is to offer healing to our entrenched divisions. Two episodes in particular filled me with hope. The first was about banning books. Ronson interviews Alice Moore, a minister's wife in West Virginia. Back in the 1970s, she was worried about books being put on school reading lists. So worried, she says, I had all 325 books delivered to my house and I started reading them including a poem she found unambiguously terrible. It ended, every day people start making love on the bus and the world has still not come to an end, but in a way it has. Well, Ronson interviewing her finds himself curious. Curious whether the poet actually might feel the same way that Moore did. So 50 years after Alice Moore's worry, Ronson tracks down the poet. And what do you know? The poet McGaw agrees with Alice Moore. He says, you can't just give way to your feelings without consequences. It's a moral tale, really, for me. And when Alice finds out, she is surprised and grateful. And there's healing. Healing that's possible when Ronson chooses curiosity. When he chooses, he says, to remember that human beings are a complicated mess. Curiosity instead of assumptions, complexity instead of tidiness. This is one way we can start to fulfill our most important job to love. And the second takeaway is this. Sometimes, sometimes we can even reach across battle lines, which I learned in the second podcast. Many of you may know this story, but 
it was new to me. Ronson interviews Steve Peters, a gay pastor with AIDS, that televangelist Tammy Faye Baker had on her show PTL back in 1985. When I heard that alone, it raised so many memories for me. In 1981, when I interned at a church on Long Island, the senior pastor was gay, and he couldn't tell 99% of the members. In 1983, when I was ordained to ministry in Ohio, an elder invited me to his favorite gay bar, but no one in the church knew he was gay. In 1999, when I pastored in suburban Chicago, it was shocking that I baptized the child of a lesbian couple, a couple who couldn't yet get married. Gay people were pariahs then, especially in Christian circles. So just imagine what it meant. What it meant for Tammy Faye Baker and Steve Peters to publicly talk with each other. When Tammy Faye's peers, like Jerry Falwell, were convincing Ronald Reagan not even to say the word AIDS. Fast forward to today. On Ronson's podcast, Peters recalls his conversation with Tammy Faye, done over satellite, over fear of AIDS. She asked him, have you found that people want to stay away and they're afraid to come to you in the room or breathe the same breath you breathe? Yes, he said. It happens. I was asked not to use the bathroom in one person's home, among other things. By the end of the interview, he remembers, Tammy was crying and saying, if I could put my arms around you and hug you, I would. And isn't it terrible that as Christians we're scared of putting our arms around people and telling them that we care? What difference did it make that Tammy Faye Baker and Steve Peters reached across enemy lines, that warring factions, the Christian right and AIDS activists in the 1980s came together and actually listened to each other. For many, the impact was deeply personal. Right after the show, someone phoned the studio and said her son had AIDS. She always thought her son was going to hell, but now she knew her son was going to heaven when he died, Peters said. He says, I've had people come up to me and tell me that interview saved my life. My mother always had PTL on, and I was 12 and I heard your interview, and suddenly I knew that I didn't have to kill myself. And Tammy Faye, it was personal for her, too. She started going to AIDS hospitals, attending LGBTQ-friendly churches, attending gay pride parades with her two kids. She made sure that they were exposed to people they otherwise would not know, he says. 
and he taught them to be loving and compassionate. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, however you feel or believe about gay rights or behaviors, however you feel or believe about what it means to be Christian in America today, when we reach across battle lines, we can feel the power of love. In Ronson's words, human connection and people listening to each other tends to work better than people retreating to their corners and screaming at each other. We need human connection. We need empathy. We need shared humanity. Is it easy? Hardly. And if it were up to us alone, we would be lost. But it's not. It's not. Because God is love. And God's love can flow in us and through us or in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, love is the greatest force in the universe. Those who love are participants in the very being of God. That's our one job, isn't it? Our one job. And it's the most important job that we will ever have. Amen. <laughs>